Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're all well. I have Surya with me today, and you guys can think of this as the second instalment in the climate change series. Um, if you remember, I spoke about climate change reporting with James earlier in the year. God, it was actually quite a long time ago now. But um, yes, yeah, so so Surya is here. She has about a million and one degrees. So I thought she'd be able to at least speak to some extent on a particular topic. And um, turns out during one of those a million and one degrees, she studied climate migration, which is an issue obviously linked to climate change, but one that wouldn't necessarily be at the top of people's you know, list of issues when, when thinking about climate change. So um, I'm going to ask Surya now to come in and just give a brief introduction to herself. Hi, Vinay. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for that introduction as well. I do not have a million and one degrees. Um, I don't have that much to add to that intro, um, but just a little bit about my educational background. So after I finished up a degree in the social sciences at Bath, where I met you, I went on to study at Warwick and NTU over here in Singapore, where I'm currently based, doing a joint master's in politics and international studies, uh, specifically in international development and comparative politics of Asia. And like you said, along the way, I found myself quite interested in researching various migration related issues. And one of the interesting and increasingly important topics is human displacement due to climate change. So yeah, that's why we're here today. Yes. Yeah, so, so as I said before, like when, when I think of climate change, obviously COP26 is imminent. Climate migration isn't one of those things that immediately springs to mind. And I think, guess one of the reasons for that is that there's a lot of reasons for migration of which climate change might be one. But in my mind, mm-hmm. how are you actually able to attribute climate change as a reason for that migration? So mm-hmm. could you give a little bit of a background to the issue maybe some smaller case studies yeah yeah sure yeah I mean exactly exactly right we, we are increasingly talking about climate change and all of its related issues particularly in light of next week's COP26 summit but uh, you know I don't want to go into climate change and rising temperatures and all of that because we do have a good understanding by now of the devastating effects of climate change. But, you know, off the bat, like you said, we think of rising temperatures, we think of sea level rise, melting ice caps, all of that. But human displacement or um, climate migration is not the first thing that comes to mind. And I really think that this is something that's only recently coming to light and being discussed as we begin to see more of its effects. And um, yeah, so just to provide a little bit more context in terms of the urgency here, uh, you know, according to the world to a World Bank report, which I'll talk about more later, if we don't take action by 2050, uh, or, yeah, by 2050, climate change could impact a lot of different factors that would ultimately force around 216 million people to internally migrate, um, which is that they'll be displaced within their own countries. And the same report actually identifies the possible emergence of hotspots for climate migration um, and as soon as 2030, which according to them would be in Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, South Asia, and East Asia and the Pacific, uh, roughly those areas. Um, So about the link between climate change and migration is, is quite interesting. So climate change 
itself is commonly known as a threat multiplier or a risk multiplier, which means that it's something that worsens many other pre-existing vulnerabilities and challenges. Um, and we'll continue to talk about that throughout this um, uh, this evening. And there are actually barely any scenarios at the moment where climate change is the main cause for migration. And some of those examples are actually in the Pacific Islands, where rapid sea level rise has already begin, begun to submerge islands, causing them to basically disappear. Uh, but by and large, climate change is known to worsen and add to various other reasons for migration. So uh, for instance, we know that climate change worsens resource scarcities, impacts food and water security, it's increased the frequency of extreme weather events such as floods and droughts and fires, which are some of the more visible impacts of climate change and climate migration we see today. And those also tend to be the massive events that get the most attention or rather that most of us think of first. Um, but it's not just sudden events, but also what they call slow onset events like sea level rise, air pollution, uh, biodiversity loss, changes in uh, rainfall trends, just to name a few. And climate migration from climate stressed regions also then puts stress on the regions that receive migrants, particularly when there's a lot of internal migration. So for example, the uh, Mekong Delta region is a low-lying region in Vietnam where sea level rise could basically affect agricultural livelihoods. But the region that people would migrate to has its own disaster prone issues. So many, many areas that receive are also already vulnerable. And that's one of the many issues here. And we will talk a little bit more about this when we discuss Bangladesh later as well. Um, so my point here is over time, these impacts of climate change will not only create these issues, but will also worsen existing crises, right? In places that already suffer from challenges like um, violent conflict, food insecurity, or places that rely on agriculture for their livelihoods. And having these challenges worsen will then push people to move. But because this is observed over time, that's what makes it difficult to understand the extent of displacement as a result of climate change. You know, that's one of the many challenges here as well. So yeah, that's that's just an introduction to the link between climate change and migration. That all makes sense. And, and I know you're going to speak about a one particular case study in a bit. But before we touch on that, as we've talked about, it's not one of the issues that immediately comes to mind when we're talking about or when we're thinking about climate change. But that's only me and you. How... How is this issue being addressed on a global scale? Is it recognized globally? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a um, that's a good question. So, so one of the things is that we do have uh, a fair bit of recognition from international organizations, um, but it's interesting how that plays out. So, something that's quite interesting is that the legal mechanisms for dealing with climate migration or talking about climate migration are not necessarily there. So for example, there is no official climate refugee or environmental refugee. I don't want to get too much into semantics, but this is important. I've largely seen the terms climate migrant, environmental migrant, climate induced displaced people, which is the words that you know, I've used so far here as well, which are more accurate terms to describe people who move due to climate change. I've also seen environmental refugees or climate refugees as well used, which is a bit trickier. And this is really important when we're talking about policies and legal channels to facilitate climate migration, um, because there's a quite a specific definition of 
a refugee, right? So um, just a bit of background, refugees are defined by the 1951 Convention on Refugees and Asylum Seekers and its 1967 protocol. Essentially, a key part of the definition is that to be considered a refugee, you need to have quote unquote, a well-founded fear of persecution. So that's a little bit trickier um, when we're talking about climate migrants. So climate refugees as a concept is not explicitly defined under the convention. You also have a mix of people forced to move due to, due to climate change and people who are more economic migrants. But at the same time, these people can't really make a viable living from the place that they're leaving due to the hazards of climate change, right? So the discussion of whether you can send back someone who was seeking asylum on the basis of climate change is actually really interesting. Um, which actually brings me to the first person to actually do that was someone from a Pacific Island nation, um, Kiribati specifically, who sought asylum to New Zealand on the basis of climate change factors only, I think sea level rise, for, for example. And their claim was actually rejected, but it did prompt the UN to think about this a little bit more. So th these are all super recent, but there is some recognition. So for example, a UN panel ruled based on this example, based on this case, I think in 2020, which was a landmark ruling that climate related factors can in fact pose a threat to individuals' rights, such as their right to life, which would then mean that states can't send refugees claiming asylum due to climate change back under international law. But under international law, right, a lot of these provisions are not binding, but the recognition of the right to claim refuge for climate change reasons is a great start here. Um, there are also other international organizations that have very recently put out reports that are entirely focused on climate migration. Uh, so for instance, from a policy recommendations perspective, the World Bank has recently released part two of the Groundswell report with part one released in 2018. We can maybe link that um, in later, which makes policy recommendations on internal climate migration. Uh, so caveat, much of the literature right now is on internal migration, which makes a lot of sense because that will form the bulk of climate migration, at least for now. And we'll talk later about some of the other points in, in these reports, but, but their existence is a great start at, at this point. And part two of the Groundswell report was literally just released in 2021 as well. So it's, it's super pertinent right now. What about some of the biggest democracies in the, in the, in the West? So the UK, the US, have they began to demonstrate an understanding of the problem of climate migration? Or do you think they're still getting to grips with with the, the main cause that is climate change? Interestingly, the White House just released a report on climate migration. Um, what happened is President Biden recently signed an executive order on climate migration, which required the National Security Advisor to report on the impact of climate migration, uh, climate change on migration. And this is the first time that the US government is actually publishing a report on the impact of climate change on migration. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's groundbreaking, right? And Although, okay, from what I've read, there are quite a few climate migration experts and nonprofit individuals, etc., who aren't entirely happy with the report. I think they say that it was more of a reiteration of what we already know, rather than a deeper, more solutions-focused document. Although the fact that this document finally exists does go to show that there are more people at the policy level um, uh, and at the national level thinking about this as an issue. And hopefully that means that um, we're a bit closer to thinking about solutions and mechanisms and 
routes for those who will be displaced by climate related uh, reasons, right? And um, something else that this report made me think of, uh, going off on a little bit of a tangent, is how countries view their international human rights obligations is very interesting here. So for example, the White House report has a statement, and I'm going to quote this uh, really quick, which says, and I quote, the United States does not consider its international human rights obligations to require extending international protection to individuals fleeing the impacts of climate change. That basically is them saying that they don't have to do anything about climate uh, migrants. They don't have to let them in. But due credit, it does then go on to mention that it is, it is in their interest to create some sort of legal pathway, as they term it, for the protection of people who are fleeing, and I quote again, serious credible threats to their life or physical integrity, including if that is climate induced. So, so that is, you know, that is a start. And the paper does push for new policy processes, specifically for climate change and migration, you know, which is which is a great step. The the recognition of the need for something to be done at the policy level at the intersection of climate change and migration is um, is a great step. So, so, you know, there are a ton of global and regional initiatives and agreements that do refer to climate migration. The Paris Agreement mentions it, and the Paris Agreement um, then also has a task force on displacement caused by climate change. Uh, we have the Global Compacts, the Global Compact for Safe, Orderly, and Regular Migration, and the Global Compact on Refugees. We have uh, the Platform on Disaster Displacement. We have the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk reduction, I think. I'm not going to go into specifics of the actual agreements, but something to discuss here is the non-binding nature of these agreements and the fact that countries are not actually required to adhere to these. So we do need legal channels created and national policies that are binding over here. Although I will say that these agreements do have some significance, I'm not saying they don't, in making climate migration a globally recognized phenomenon because let alone having any policies around it, even recognizing it as something that requires our attention is fairly new. And these frameworks also do help to outline ways to deal with climate migration, which can then filter into national policies. Given that the recognition of this issue is fairly new, as you say, um, especially on a global or a national scale, the fact that regional agreements are in place, like you said, it, perhaps that means that these co the countries that are implementing these regional agreements, are, are they a little bit more advanced in, in their understanding of the issue? Uh, are there any examples of regional agreements that are in place? There are uh, some regional agreements that are starting to make some headway here. I'll, I'll give a quick example. I read that the African Union's Convention on Protection and Assistance of Internally Displaced Persons in Africa, very long, it actually does have a shorter name. I think it's called the Kampala Agreement or something like that, not so sure. Uh, so that's within the continent. Um, actually is a legally binding agreement that requires states to assist internally displaced persons displaced by various disasters, including climate change related ones. Great, legally binding, right? That's what we've been talking about, which, which is great. We need more of these. Um, there's actually, maybe we can link this as well. There's a policy brief by the South African Institute of International Affairs about this convention um, that highlights how, based on this agreement, many countries, um, in the African continent have actually created national policies because of it, some of which include climate change as a cause of inter internal displacement. 
which is, you know, that that is something we don't necessarily even have at the global level, something binding like that. So, you know, you, you can see how regional agreements can filter through to national policies. Um, so, yeah. That's that's a little bit. A few, uh, there's a lot of lot more examples I could go into there, but you know, in the interest of time, it's encouraging to know that a government such as the US is actually seems like it's on their agenda. Climate migration is such a, it's probably quite a new concept for for most people, and I know you've done a good job of explaining it there. But are there any particular case studies that you looked into? Yes, absolutely. So so yeah so. The example that we can explore in depth here is that of Bangladesh's challenges with climate change and how that plays out given its relationships with its neighbors like India, for example. And this is my example of choice largely because it's something I'm more familiar with, but a lot of the vulnerabilities are seen across regions, of course, with each region having unique challenges, but a lot of the implications for policy can be extrapolated in other situations as well. So, uh, so just diving right into it, right? South Asia is a region I mentioned earlier where there exists many tensions between the different countries, right? So when you bring climate change into the picture, there are already a lot of fragilities with reference to migration that we need to acknowledge. And migration linked to the climate is not very well studied in the region and in, other, and in a lot of other regions. But South Asia is one of the most climate risk susceptible regions on the planet. So it is important to talk about this. Uh, what makes Bangladesh so climate risk susceptible? Um, I mean, research anticipates that by 2050, one in seven people in the country will be displaced because of climate change. Right? That's, that's, and is that's that in, a massive is that, statistic. And that's internally? Or- and that's that's internally yeah, yeah. exactly um and bangladesh's geographical position in the world's largest delta which is the ganga brahmaputra meghna delta uh, makes 60 percent of the country low-lying and so makes it especially vulnerable to climate change and it suffers as a result uh from coastal erosion ruins agricultural land loss of livelihood due to things like crop failure rising levels and all of it is worsened by climate change at this uh, at this point the drivers of migration are largely economic i will say but these drivers are worsened by climate change you know so for instance where agriculture is a main source of income here um, of both food security and also livelihoods and sources of income and countries that are more vulnerable to climate change because of their geographies like bangladesh are also very serious about climate change because they know and they can see what the impact is on them but they may not necessarily have the resources to do the most about it right um so yeah and and presumably uh, like with all countries whether you take them country by country or the globe as a whole um the effect of climate change is very unequal right um i'd expect well presumably Mm -hmm. uh climate change will more heavily affect those in more poverty stricken mm-hmm. situations mm-hmm. is that the sick yeah. can that be applied to, to bangladesh as well uh, where yes. perhaps yeah. the more vulnerable and poor people are are mm-hmm. going to feel the effects of climate migration more than those you know living in living a little bit more lavishly yes absolutely absolutely uh, those who are most vulnerable um who are the poorest people with the fewest resources, and also those who are historically marginalized um, do feel 
disproportionately the effects of climate change. So, uh, for instance, women and children are historically made more vulnerable by migration in general. Um, and in many places, migration actually tends to be more male centered, um, in which case the women stay behind in places that are increasingly unlivable um, and are also more dependent on remittances that come from the people who have migrated, right? The, the money that they send back. If those remittances stop coming, they then face more hardship. And to, to, you know, to top it off, they also often take on the bulk of caring roles of children and the elderly, which is then made harder with the added hardships of living in climate stressed regions, right? So um, actually a side note on this, in Bangladesh, external migration across borders tends to be male dominated, but actually for internal migration, many women migrate internally to work in the garment industry. It's a lot of um, rural to urban migration uh, as well. And, uh, you know, we're talking about internal migration because at this point, internal migration is prioritized because, of course, it's uh, easier than crossing borders. It's also cheaper than crossing borders. It's also easier to then return to their homes if they're ever able to, if it's temporary migration, which, uh, which at times it is. But uh, while many are forced to migrate, not all of them can actually even afford to migrate. You know, it is expensive to move. And the cost of migration can be something that forces people to remain in locations that are not ideal or that are increasingly unlivable. As I said, rural to urban migration within the country is the main form of movement, but there are a lot of people who migrate across the border to India. But it's extremely difficult to measure the impact of climate change related factors for that. Um, but I mean, if we think about it, urban areas in Bangladesh, such as the capital city of Dhaka, do suffer from issues like overcrowding and don't necessarily have a pace of development that is able to match the rates of migration. Right. And eventually we may be looking as a result of that at cross border migration to India. Um, and and actually to answer your question, could go back to your question, I went off on a tangent there. When we talk about climate change as a risk or threat multiplier, we do need to consider what the impacts of migration without good or in fact any migration policy will be on the people who move. And like we said, the people who move are already those that are in vulnerable positions. And all of the vulnerabilities that are associated with informal migration, which a lot of the migration tends to be, will also apply to climate-induced migration. And this is adding challenges on top of challenges, you know. The challenges don't just stop with displacement and with the movement. The very process of migrating is extremely risky. And those who migrate to Dhaka, for example, are already vulnerable to abuse and exploitation, research shows, right? And these risks tend to get worse when we start thinking about cross-border migration. Um, so you have these agents who organize cross-border migration who you pay money to help move and they provide the primary method of getting across the border but then also getting to large cities where the opportunities are but these methods of migration are really most dangerous because they're not reliable one and two they're often falsely advertised so these channels are actually quite well known to sometimes be linked to human trafficking rings or other forms of exploitation particularly of women again right and another thing um, is that the nature of work that people who move might do which include uh domestic work or 
um, what else, construction work, rag picking, things like that. Uh, these are jobs that see a high level of exploitation as it is. Um, so, you know, that's that's another vulnerability. And I mean, we already know this, but migrants also are then subject to existing social and national framings of migrants. So, you know, we hear a lot about migrants being seen as criminals or terrorists. And you can see, you can already kind of see this in areas at the India-Bangladesh border, which sees increasing anti-immigrant sentiment. So that's, you know, that's another added uh, vulnerability, added challenge there. That, that's quite a good, it just, I guess it helps to, properly you know understand the the situation with respect to climate migration um and as you said and as you've touched upon it's kind of it all comes down to that point about climate change being a risk multiplier um Mm -hmm. you have climate migration but that can lead to so many further threats so given it seems to be such a big issue is the bangladesh government doing anything at the moment have they tried to address the problem directly or indirectly how have those solutions fared is there any discussion on that yeah so uh, yeah that's a good question um, like i said right the countries um that are most vulnerable to climate change are naturally often the most vocal such as bangladesh also the maldives right also the pacific islands um attempts in Bangladesh have been made to create national frameworks for climate change adaptation. So um, initiatives such as the National National Adaptation Program of Action or Bangladesh Climate Change Strategy and Action Plan aim to find solutions for climate change adaptation. Okay, that's those are there. Bangladesh is also taking steps to engage with international governance, such as the Nansen Initiative that's now called the platform for is that something i can't remember apologies so it is trying to engage with these international agreements so while these are positive steps the specific issues coming from bangladeshi migration to india need to be addressed with the cooperation of both countries and with regional mechanisms in south asia regional mechanisms that actually work would be a great step in the right direction. So South Asia does have a few regional governance mechanisms in place, like SAC, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation. There's something called BIMSTEC, which is the Bay of Bengal Initiative for multi-sectoral technical and economic cooperation. And there are others. Um, But in South Asia, there's a lot of wariness among the countries, which is really the main impediment to the success of regional cooperation attempts. And the other point I want to make here is that migration isn't really itself used as a method of adaptation. So what I mean is we need to start thinking of having legal recourse for safe migration channels because people moving due to climate change is a reality, you know, and so it's not enough to just try and reduce the impacts of climate change, although that is, of course, very important. That is the primary point here. But we also need to start thinking about using migration as a method of adaptation and therefore trying to facilitate safe channels, safe and legal channels um, for that migration. Right. So, yeah, to, just to sort of wrap that up, right, there there are researchers and members of civil society and NGOs and things who are actively working on this in Bangladesh. So, for example, there's actually some really good research by the Refugee and Migratory Movements 
Research Unit in Dhaka, RMMRU, which talks a lot about the nature of climate migration in Bangladesh and also talks about the impacts of inequalities on who gets to migrate, which is which is great. That's, you know, um, great that they're doing that. What it does stress on in definitive terms is that the effects of environmental degradation and climate change are not a future concern because you can feel the impacts at this very moment. And as climate change and its resultant hazards get more intense, migration, both internal and cross-border, is inevitable. The main takeaway there is that we've been talking about climate migration as a result of climate change and perhaps painting it in a light where climate migration is bad, uh, it, it leads to so many other problems. But the reality is that climate change is being tackled somewhat slowly and climate migration is a reality. So it's a case of making that climate migration or any migration safer and mm-hmm. not have as many resulting issues. Is that is that the kind of point you're trying to make? Yeah, exactly. And OK, so talking about solutions, there's a lot of issues with creating solutions. And, and, and you're right, right? Like we need to make existing, we obviously need some new frameworks, but we also need to make existing frameworks stronger. So one of the major issues here with creating policy for climate change is that it's not so easy, and we spoke about this earlier, to pinpoint climate change as the sole factor for displacement, right? It's not as clear cut as that. And there are often intersecting reasons for displacement and for movement, as with any other issue, right? And the other thing that we did speak about as well that is that we're only just starting to recognize movement due to climate-related factors. Um, and, and even then, more can be done to do that. And even where international agreements mention impacts on human displacement due to natural disasters or other environmental causes, these are not bound by law. And that's another thing that you know we spoke about. That's another issue. And another thing is we did talk about how climate change hazards can lead to displacement Um, in a bunch of ways, right? In a mix of sudden onset and also slow onset events. And a lot of these long-term effects require policies to be implemented or improved from right now. So climate policy isn't really separate from uh, sustainable development plans or existing migration policies. Uh, These are interconnected issues. And so the policies themselves need to be interconnected as well and not separate. So we need to consider the climate and climate migration at all levels. And honestly, there is a fundamental need to understand the various risks that climate change poses to existing issues better. So understanding the links between the various challenges and climate change, for example, climate change and conflict, where existing displaced people are made even more vulnerable due to uh, drought or flooding or something else. Um, These need to be understood better. We need to then be exploring migration as a solution and not just as a problem. And like I said before, climate adaptation as including the facilitation of safe migration channels. Um, I had said that I would mention the Groundswell Report again. So the Groundswell Reports uh, themselves did highlight migration as an adaptation strategy, which is great. But for this, you need well-managed migration policies 
that facilitate movement from less to more viable locations. The solutions proposed in the report are first and foremost, of course, to cut greenhouse gases, right? I mean, this is what all of the agreements and organizations are talking about. We know this. Ultimately, cutting emissions will decrease the level of disruption to lives due to climate change. And that's the most urgent solution that we need, and that's ongoing. But at the same time, it is also widely acknowledged that we're already at that point where for the most vulnerable places and for the most vulnerable people, migration is a certainty. Right. And that's why it's essential to include migration into national and regional development plans. There are very few good laws and policies to deal with climate induced migration within existing plans. Right. And one of the reasons for that, like we said, is a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge around um, around even internal migration. Right. And there is a need to demystify migration, both at uh, climate migration, both at global and national levels, where research could better add, it could add a better understanding of climate risk and its current as well as future impacts to then be able to create better sustainable policies of anything, all, all of the policies, and also to have models and mechanisms in place to then collect data on climate vulnerabilities and how well adaptation methods work so that we can continue to improve upon any policies, right? And we can't really make policy decisions without good quality data about climate migration. So that's, you know, this is some of the things that's that are in the Groundswell report, um, which which is again, you know, great that we have that, but th these need to come to light in actual policy, right? And there are actually instances within some countries where planned relocation has been the solution to areas becoming uninhabitable. Um, and that's and that's a part of identifying and reducing risk by getting ahead of the issue. So yeah, that's that's basically. I think I, I think I mentioned it before, but obviously, there's so many reasons for migration. And you're saying that there's a there's a particular need for governments and global bodies to better understand how climate migration specifically comes about so do you have any insight into how climate migration specifically would be measured would there be would it be surveys of migrants or climate change risk profiles of the countries from where migrants are emigrating yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things we did talk about is that's the issue, right? It's so difficult to separate, uh, to, 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 uh, to say that this is what's ca causing migration. Climate change specifically is causing migration. It's very difficult to do that. But what you've said is right. Like, we need more research and we need more data on on the ground right in areas where this is actually happening and there are places there are like i mentioned ngos and research units on the ground that are already doing this um rmmru as i mentioned before also did that where they had research done um in the uh in the delta region that is most affected and and they did research on the livelihoods of the households there so that's you know things like that um are already very helpful and for that you need to have you need to not just have top level policy implementation you need to have that to be informed by community level information right you then need to have um you need to speak with and you need to have tie-ups with the people who are experiencing this the um 
and the people who are working on the ground, the civil society um, members working on the ground and NGOs and things like that, who have that firsthand knowledge as well. So you really, you know, you really need to, it's not just about, um, it's not just about having global compacts and agreements and things like that. Those are great, but you need to have all of that to be informed by information on the ground. Well, Sri, I think we've discussed quite a lot there. It was really good to have you explain both the an introduction to the issue and also what helped the explanation was talking about Bangladesh in particular, uh, the risks it faces from from climate change and how climate migration might exacerbate further risks in Bangladesh. So really appreciate your time. Hopefully we can have you on again discussing something else. But yeah, thank, thank you very much for your time. And I appreciate that you put in a lot of research to this. So thank you. Thank you, Vinay. Yeah, it's, it's been great to chat about this. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the areas I'm super interested in. And of course, there's so much more we could talk about just on this topic. You know, we've barely touched on, we've only touched on one region, one country, really. And there's so many regions that have unique challenges. And there's a lot to be said about community-based solutions as well and talking more about the communities that are affected. So there's a lot of topics within this. And, and hopefully we can get into that someday. But thank you so much for having me.